Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with J.D. Davids for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 11, 2017, and this is being recorded at J.D.'s home in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. Uh, tell me about uh, your childhood. Um, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, and um, I don't know. There, uh, I when I was, I remember when I was, I think four, telling my mom that I wanted to be a boy, and and also that I wanted to marry a girl, and all these, and she was, I think pretty shocked. I think that's in part why I remember it is her reaction. I don't specifically remember her reaction. And, um, and I grew up like sort of mystified by like other children, particularly girls, like not understanding their culture or why they did the things they did. Um, and, uh, but also just feeling socially awkward or not knowing how to like engage with people. Um, although I don't know how much that was just like on the inside versus the outside. And, uh, I read a lot. I sort of was an early and big reader and lost myself in books a lot of the time. And, uh, and, uh, I had, a, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of conflict, um, between my parents and with my younger brother at times. And so there was a disharmonious and dysfunctional experience with some, um, some, uh, hard stuff that comes from having a parent with a mental illness and, uh, also feeling that like we were the only Jewish family in our neighborhood as far as I knew. I mean, there were Jews like here and there, there were a couple in my school, but also feeling like that aspect of difference. I'm not sure about that. Um, and, uh, so feeling kind of out of place a lot. And then I, um, when I was in for fourth, fifth, and sixth grades, I went to a Quaker school, and that was really great uh, for me. And I made, I always had like a couple friends, but I felt really rooted there. And then um, went back to public school for middle school, which is pretty rough transition, adolescence, and started like, I mean, all along I was like, I never, I never felt or never, yeah, and still don't feel like I'm in the wrong body or things like that, and didn't feel. Yeah, not too much like dysmorphic in life um, and ended up in adolescence sort of like trying to do the, you know, the girl thing and feeling like I didn't do it very well. But um, and then when I was in, I went to high school and pretty like uh, was I, I sort of put peer pressure on myself for sex and drugs and like sought stuff out <laughs> and found stuff and uh, then became like punk rock and um, was sort of political after a fashion, you know, as like, as far as I could sort of figure out in like a non-political family and a non-political, very political, not very political community. Um, so just sort of like against stuff, um, in the Reagan era. And, um, then, uh, uh, is this a good clip? moving through the lifespan okay then I um yeah I, and I was not like yeah I was not a queer identified youth you know I didn't um I had boyfriends 
You can tell us a and bit more detail. More details? Or, yeah. yeah. I'm curious okay. about the books you read. Oh, the books up. I read? Yeah. Uh, fiction. Well, everything. I was like a voracious reader. Like yeah. I read everything in like the young adult section of the library in my little town, you know? I yeah. just sort of like, worked my way through it and read a lot. And so in part, I and I'm still this way to the day, I sort, it's, I sort of like the way I read is I just like you wouldn't remember every meal you had. Like I sort of eat books. And I eat the things I read and I digest them and I can't really tell you what they were so much, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked Harriet the Spy. I just reread Harriet the Spy to my daughter and it's pretty nasty, like, you know. Um, you know, so I did some editing, you know, but it's a, you know, a pretty lonely kid, you know. And, and so I remember like really embracing and loving that story and, and having my spy outfit I would put on and stuff. And that was about like maybe like seven, eight, you know, my daughter's now seven, so it's very evocative, but, um, so I really liked Harriet the Spy, and the Madeline the Angle books about, you know, A Wrinkle in Time and stuff, I like those, like, and then science fiction, my dad was into science fiction, introduced me to that, oh, I remember, I was just telling someone the other day, I remember when I was in, I think, fifth grade, my dad gave me 1984 to read, and I remember two things about sort of the, my social circumstances of reading it, one was that uh, my teacher was like, oh, sort of like there's so many good children's books to read. Why do you have to read something that's so harsh in a way? Um, something like that. And then there was, a, there was sex in it. And I was like, oh, my God, does my dad know that this is in this book? <laughs> and I was like horrified, sort of touching the pages and being like, huh. Um, so that was memorable. <laughs> as well as, you know, I did absorb the political message. Um, and uh, I... Uh, yeah, I just loved reading, and, and I read really fast, and so I, um, you know, was uh, sort of known for that, like a, being a really early reader and really fast reader, and sort of trotted around sometimes for my, like, advanced reading proclivities or whatever, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I was, a, I was a funny child, and uh, I thought when I was, yeah, when I was in second or third grade, my life goals were to either be a spy or a hockey player. A professional ice hockey player, yeah. So, um, had you seen ice hockey? It was. I think the Flyers won the Stanley Cup for two years around then. So it was. I had seen it on TV, and it was kind of a thing then, you know. Um, but it seemed like. I mean, as it turns out, I like being like like I was not brought up to be like really physical or athletic or anything. So I think like aspiring to something that was pretty rough and male and athletical, you know, like was a thing. Um, and then I ended up doing figure skating when I was a, an adolescent for a couple of years. But, um, and, and then later I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a journalist and that's what I ended up being. And I remember, I think it was in uh, early high school, we had to do like a character sketch and I wrote a character who was like a journalist who got like called in by the boss for being too political and, and then you know, profess their vows for speaking up for the truth or something like that. So that's pretty funny. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so I, uh, and then when I was in high school, I worked in the mall behind my um, high school and I smoked a lot of pot and um, had boyfriends and, um and then, you know, my, my most memorable, one of my more memorable parts of that is like I had a, boyfriend whose former girlfriend came and ordered a um, soda from me at the original cookie company where I was working. I know who she was. So she ordered the soda from me and she threw it in my face 
and said, stay away from Dave. So that was a really exciting moment in adolescence where I was like laughing. It was like, oh, I'm going to tell this story forever. So now I'm telling it into this archive. It just keeps on giving back, you know. Um, so then uh, I... Yeah, I dropped out. I went to college and dropped out after a couple months, um, George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and just, like, I was, like, 17 and wasted and, you know, just wasn't up for it and not that interested in it. And then I came home and um, and uh, had a period of, like, lots of sex and drugs and still hadn't figured out I was queer. And um, then more or less got my shit together and also my parents got divorced and I um, went back to school at Temple when I was like like a year later, a year, year and a half or two later and then I ended up getting married to one of my high school boyfriends, sort of like the main high school boyfriend who I cheated on a lot. I got married to him right after my first year, at the end of my first year of high school um, and as a way of sort of like asserting some stability and independence, you know, um, and uh, when I was in my last year of, I was a women's studies major, and um, joined the Temple Coalition for Peace and Justice, as, and um, it was, what it, year was that this? was, so I went to, I don't know when I started there, it was probably like 1987 or something, and then I graduated in 1990, and so it was my last couple of years I was involved with that, and then my, during my last year, um, one of the people I'd been in the Temple Coalition for Peace and Justice with, who graduated a year before me, joined ACT UP Philly, uh, Mike Marsico. And so I learned about ACT UP from him. And I think I, I, yeah, I started doing ACT UP stuff sort of as I was finishing college. And it was also like I had started getting a clue that I was queer, you know. So it was a nice way to be around and meet queer people as well as um, wh while I was in college, um, there was a... Uh, a first set of uh, cutbacks, uh, not cutbacks, but um, restrictions on abortion rights in Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of like pro-choice organizing. And so I thought I would um, help with that. And, and I remember really clearly that the groups that came to my campus, they just wanted my money or my vote. And I felt, you know, I didn't have much money and I can only vote now and then. And so I um, wanted to do more. And then with ACT UP, it was like, hey, write this press release. What should we have on our signs? Make a sign, do these things. Do it. So it was just like lots to do, you know, um, and to just be, deeply in a movement so that was really appealing and um I uh so I was like coming out and married to this guy and trying to figure out what to do and then um so I joined ACT UP and uh when I got out of college uh, I got pretty in involved and um so in September 1991 um was so that whole summer there was a act ups joined together to protest um along the electoral campaign you know and it was um uh was okay before that wait i'm getting my years messed up but in 1991 was when they were starting so when george bush you know the elder was announcing he was going to run for his second term there was a big act up protest in kenny bunkport maine where the bush family has their you know a compound and um a lot of act up groups went and we took an all night bus and um, did a big die in where people were like carried up the driveway to as far as we can get towards the compound. And I was like carried 
up and laid down, you know, in this die-in. And I had, um, at the time, I had, like, bleach blonde hair and cat eye um, sunglasses. So it was a very dramatic picture that ended up being an AP and <laughs> for some reason. But um, I don't know if it was because of my look, per se, fate. But um, so then uh, after that, me and my husband and some friends drove to a friend's cabin in Maine and the whole time I was like crushed out on this woman there who's like one of my act up comrades. And then um, we came home and within the next two weeks, it was, I think it was either September 10th or 11th, 1991, there was a big protest at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel uh, where um, George Bush was coming and it was a fundraiser for him and Dick Thornburg who was running for had been governor and was running for attorney general or something like that. And so there was a big coalition protest, for like three, I remember it was like three or 4,000 people. And there was a big police riot where they particularly targeted and attacked um, the act up section of the crowd and said homophobic shit. And this pe one guy was left bleeding in the street with a head wound. And um, uh, so I, th I remember thinking really clearly at the time, like, well, fuck, I'm getting, like, gay bash, and I'm not even getting, like, gay sex. Like, I'm doing something wrong here. Something needs to change. I had already, like, made out with someone at Gay Pride that summer, I think. And Anyway, things were happening. So then I came out and left my husband, and I, I found my first girlfriend on the index cards. People had um, signed little index cards that had been in this this demonstration so we could, like, testify or figure out what to do, and I had spotted this person and figured out who she was and got her phone number off of one of these cards. <laughs> <laughs> and she um, became my legendary first girlfriend. Um, so that was all really exciting times where things were happening pretty fast. What, um, was, what was the scene like in Act Up Philly? Like what, how, how many people, what were their ages and genders? Sure. Like what kind of, what was the culture like? Uh, well, the culture was, again, it was very like, we are doing this for ourselves. We're going to make, we can do anything. We're going to make everything happen. It was... Um, and it was growing rapidly. Like, I don't know when really the peaks were, but it was, um, it wasn't like hundreds of people at meetings, but it was like, and I have a lousy memory for this stuff, but it was many, many, many people at meetings, like dozens to a hundred maybe. And, and many people were in ACT UP, right? And there was, pro I remember the time of being like, there was protests all the time. And so across a number of issues, there was always something to do. Um, and go to. So there's a lot of like just turn out and showing up, you know, and um, and working together in person. So we would have one meeting a week that was our big planning meeting and then we have our action committee where people would make the signs and you know, this is the time. So like, it's like we had one computer we shared in our office and then we all made signs together, made phone calls together and just did things. It was, the genders, were, it was it was pretty mixed. I mean, I would, I, I'm assuming it was mostly male, but there was a lot of women it was mostly or all implicitly or explicitly, you know, like cis-identified people. There wasn't a lot of consciousness about trans stuff or talk about it, as I remember. There was, it was mostly white, though um, not all white. And uh, there was, uh, we had a sort of dynamic between us and we the people, which is a, um, was a, across the country and there was, PWA coalitions, so coalitions of people with AIDS. That in the one in Philly, um, earlier on, had been sort of uh, got conscious and did some things about race, right? So it was basically like there were interventions where it became led by people of color, 
by and large. I mean, the executive director, David Fair, was a white guy. And there was real leadership, deep leadership by people of color, um, maybe similar to sort of like a housing works dynamic today, although not so much services and much smaller. But so we had ACT UP and we had We The People and there was some crossover and there'd be times where, where We The People was like, no, we got this, you know, and um, we would sort of take marching orders for them. But there was key leaders in ACT UP like uh, Kiyoshi Karamiya, uh, Roy Hayes, um, other leaders of color, um, but particularly in that era, it was mostly white as far as I remember it. Um, and, you know, a lot of people living with HIV and dying with HIV, you know, people were, it, I, I really remember that, that, just that feeling, which, you know, it, I wouldn't say, it, it's not right to say it felt normal at the time, but I hadn't ever been, you know, that age before and found myself in a circumstance where I would just witness people declining over a course of meetings, you know, and, and working together as comrades. I, and just it seemed not normal, but it was ex expected and inevitable. And, and in, including like there were people in ACT UP leaders like Dominic Bash. Um, I remember like handling it with incredible power and grace and just this consciousness that he is a person um, who is like deeply queer, been kicked out of seminary, you know, deeply religious, um, in recovery, who found himself dying, right? And just like living in that, like living into that and just being the, the, the sort of like culture and ethics were just being really upfront about stuff, you know, and um, and then people would, would start to have cognitive decline. It was like hard. And so like, you know, through the years, like facilitating meetings, dealing respectfully with people who I knew well or didn't know well, who either they, you know, had um, AIDS dementia or maybe they came in because uh, they had stuff going on in their lives that they had some mental health challenges or whatever and dealing respectfully with people all as movement comrades right while running a meeting is uh prepares you for a lot <laughs> so I got prepared for a lot and I also um I had I had a couple jobs out of college but then I ended up um at one point I was my first like reporter job or um, one of the few I've had is uh I ended up becoming a news reporter it was a halftime job, I think, for O Courant, which was the second Philadelphia gay newspaper at the time. Um, so it had broken off from Philadelphia Gay News, and it was run by, basically it was run by these, there's three men who had started it, and they were all dying of AIDS, basically. And, and one met, uh, was um, Frank Broderick was a news reporter, and I was brought in to sort of shadow him and take over as his health was declining. And um, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And then the publisher would... Um, uh, fire us all, like, every two weeks or so, he would, like, be really angry and, like, fire us all, and they're like, just just go home for a day and come back, it's fine. So it was it was pretty intense, you know, in addition to not knowing what the hell I was doing. So I don't remember how long I did that for. It wasn't long, but it was pretty, um, it was both really uh, formative, and I can't remember a lot. I've really been thinking a lot lately about how little I remember from those days. <laughs> um, so that was kind of intense, and uh, I... Um, what should I tell? I, what should I tell you next? What was the? <laughs> I, I'm I'm personally quite yeah. curious about the class dynamic mm. in ACT UP. Uh, do you remember what kind of professions or backgrounds people came from? Yeah, I mean it was mixed and it was subterranean. Like I don't remember too much of being discussed, um, but uh, it was a range. Like a people's professions, like Dominic Bash had been a hairdresser, and. Um, I believe it was fairly, you know, from Philly working class. Um, there were people who, 
had come through like professional who had professionalized professional jobs. There's me. I came from an upper middle class background. Um, there's there was just there was a range, and in part, people didn't. Talk, I, I, either I don't remember or sometimes like it was just like we're doing this thing you know and I was like living in you know I was living in like the well so after I my I broke up with my girlfriend you know after like a year and a half and I moved into anarchist collective housing from sort of then on out um, for my time in Philly so I was sort of rooted in this like activist minded anarchist um, community in which people supported ACT UP many people were in ACT UP and it's also part of why I ended up sort of rooted in that more than in the lives of people in ACT UP who weren't in that or knowing more about them. So I, I think that probably what it was was there was like different um, social or class clusters or cliques even in ACT UP that people would meet up at meetings and do these things together and then go our separate ways. Um, that I It wasn't always class stratified, but we sort of went to our home, home groups, our home communities, right? Um, so, uh, there was like center city gay men, for example, I'm sure, or like, like Jonathan Lacks. Um, and then there would be like people who, and there started being more through the years. I mean, you know, there's a big shift in the group, but there was more like people from the, uh, recovery communities in Philadelphia who tend to be people of color from poor working class backgrounds. Um, and then there was like, sort of like mixed class anarchists that maybe skewed middle class or upper middle class, I don't really know, but that, but I'm pretty sure, you know, um, uh, but it wasn't, I, there wasn't often moments in ACT UP Philly like I've been in or seen in other activist groups of sort of like, uh, you know, rigorous self-criticism and analysis about why don't we have this or why aren't we doing this or, or look what happens in this class dynamic. I think there were probably really intense class dynamics that, um, just went on and were unconfronted. Yeah. So uh, the last specific action you mentioned in ACT UP Philly was in 91. Yeah. Tell me about the early and mid 90s as in ACT UP Philly. Um, well, a lot of it was like things like I remember in like, for example, like Collingdale, which is like a small township or whatever in Delaware County, put out uh, one ad for a uh, sheriff, I think it was, or something like that. And they said they had to be HIV negative, like something egregious like that. So we'd be like, we've got to go. And we'd like go and protest that, right? So it'd be like case by case, or someone can't get something from their insurance. And we would go to that office. We would be like the shock troops. We would just show up where we needed to show up. So there was that. There wasn't, I remember when I first went to, um, I went to the Midwest Academy organizing training in, um, I think it was like 1994. And I was like, What? this is what organizing is? Like, I had no idea. Basically, we were mobilizing constantly. And it would also be, like, Act Up New York um, would have, or other, it seemed like it would be Act Up New York would have, like, a national action. We would send a busload of people. You know, that would be part of our job would be to fill the bus. Um, and I, for whatever reason, I never went to these big national actions that, you know, have been reported on. Like, I really didn't do much of any of those. Um, but it would be, uh, and what we did also in Philly was, um, fair amount of research advocacy. We put out our own standard of care. Um, it was a fourfold or maybe like six pages at some point. And so um, it had something like 13 or 16 editions, 
came out before the government had its own standard of care for HIV. And it was uh, in English and Spanish, and it was we would just mail it out lots of places and leave stacks places. And it was a tool that people could take to the doctor with them to say, here's what I need, here's how I should be treated. Um, and people would also come to the meetings to share information. Um, so here's a new clinical trial, here's something that's promising. Um, so there was that aspect, it was a place people could go to live in different ways. You know, we also had some great parties or fundraisers. Uh, people would like hook up, meet people and act up, you know. Um, and we would, I wish I could look at that timeline. I mean, we definitely had our own campaigns. It wasn't just reactive. Uh, we started a needle exchange <laughs> for one, right? I just don't remember the years of anything, but um, it was uh, it was a great. I learned so much from it because uh, it was led. Uh, I remember Scott Tucker, who was a leader in the group, who went to San Francisco for a year and then came back and said, "We've got to start a syringe exchange." We're like, "Okay," and key in our strategy was that we were going to start it and make the city fund it and run it. That we were not going to be doing this as a volunteer activity. It was hardcore public health. It needed to be funded and staffed. So our campaign, as I remember it, was we were going to start it to show it could happen in the sky when it fall down, and we were going to get it um, acknowledged as legal and funded in six months. And I think we did it in eight or nine months. Yeah. So that was a that was that was really important. And then sometime after, the state said they were going to come and raid, you know, and shut it down. And the um, Health commissioner came that day, and the mayor was on call and said he would show up if, if they showed up, and they didn't show up. But um, so the that was the mayor would show up at to, the, to a syringe exchange to to on defend your it. Side? Yeah, against yeah, the yeah, police. against the against the state. Wow. Yeah, because it was um, there's a something was in the the Philadelphia City Charter saying that in a public health emergency they could supersede state law, uh, meaning in this case the drug paraphernalia law. Right. So that was what it was uh, understood to be. So that's how Prevention Point Philadelphia got started. That's, it's another thing that happened in those years is like we would start something and we'd get spin off, spun off as a nonprofit um, or, or project. So different ones include like Midnight Cowboy Project, which was uh, street outreach for sex workers, uh, late night stuff. Um, Hassan Gibbs was a big part of that um, for many years. And um, uh, the community called it, it was like community condom initiative or community condom project which became youth health empowerment project which um was and is like a youth organizing and services and um health place uh or or initiative um some of these things came to be housed at philadelphia fight which is uh i ended up working a bunch of us worked at fight um which was a uh Started out standing for field initiating group for HIV trials, um, oh, which was yes, that. that's right. It was an acronym. It it wow. it, 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 it dropped being an acronym long before that became the current trend. But um, so Philadelphia Fight was part of the community based clinical trials network of Amfar, and so one of the first like uh, things I did there was like data entry in a Mac in the box computer where we were doing a, a natural history study of just um, putting stuff from people's charts into a national database to just figure out what the hell was going on with people, you know. Um, and then Philadelphia Fight grew into these different projects and absorbed some programs and became this broad thing. Um, and uh, But it would have a monthly session called Information You Need to Live at a hospital, which would be the auditorium where it would be like the latest research. And it was very much part of, you know, there was this culture of like, you know, we need to, no one's going to save our lives but ourselves. And 
yeah. you do all we can. And um, Kiyoshi Karamiya was a big person in ACT UP Philly um, in those years, and his his whole practice as a uh, movement leader for many years was um, a, a number of things. I'd say one was just showing up everywhere and all the time. But the second was just um, being prepared and doing what needed to be done. So um, a lot of uh, like information exchange, sharing information, keeping the door, uh, kicking the door open and then bringing others with you was a big part. And so he was very involved in, in um, national and international like clinical trials advocacy. And that was a big thing then because like that's how people get care was through clinical trials is one of the ways. And so he, um, when I started doing stuff at Bite, uh, Coleman Terrell, um, who worked was one of the first staff people there in an ACT UP, he got me to be a on a community advisory board for pediatric clinical trials, which also included perinatal transmission um, research. And then as it was local trials affiliated with a national ne- network, and Kiyoshi got me to come to one of their national meetings in D.C. And it was great because it, it happened to be, it was the AIDS clinical trials group, and it happened to be during the election when Bill Clinton got elected, right? And so I was there at this meeting in D.C. where also the DNC had their victory party. So I was with all these great, like, powerful dykes from ACT UP LA that um, had this banner. They just brought along this banner that said, no matter who's president, there's still an AIDS crisis. Because that's, you know, you could always use that. So um, we took over the stage um, at the Sheraton Omni Hotel, I think it was, ballroom, right after or as Jesse Jackson was speaking with our banner and, like, issued a, you know, call to Bill Clinton saying, we basically, like, we don't really, well, let's see what you actually do now, right? Like, he said good stuff. He was forced to say good things during the campaign, you know? And then the next day, he went to the National Press Club to, uh, there was, like, a press conference of LGBT groups, I think, or AZ groups, I don't know, but we also did the same thing of sort of, like, we don't, we're not giving you the benefit of the doubt type thing. Um, so that's not what happened at every clinical trials advocacy meeting, but I ended up being a representative to the national, um, the committee of the AIDS clinical trials group that I was appointed to this um, community constituency group that people with HIV and allies won to like sit next to these researchers getting federal funding to figure out what how these trials should work, right, and what they should be about. And so I was on the perinatal transmission committee so in 1993, there was this trial, ACTG 076, that was the first trial that showed that if um, pregnant women took AZT um, in the third trimester and then the babies got it for the first six weeks, I believe, of life, transmission rates went from 25% to 8%. So it was like, the besides needle exchange, it was like the only thing that worked um, for prevention for a very long time. It was a huge, huge thing, and it was pretty incredible to like be in the thick of that it's a pretty big deal. And then I also saw, that was another lesson learned, like once those findings came in, in Philadelphia and around the country, um, public health got its shit together, right? And I remember in Philly, there was this blue ribbon panel, it was called, that brought together like the neonatologists and the, like everybody who may encounter pregnant women to say, how are we going to get these systems in place? Like, because it's a lot of, it was like systems issue of like making sure that women got tested for HIV and, and treatment and um, didn't like fall through all these cracks and I saw how they could get their shit together and they got their shit together for the babies in ways they didn't get together for others, you know? So that has been a lesson that has carried, has not been lost on me to this day. You know, if you look at, for example, what has and hasn't happened with PrEP, right? Like if PrEP, like basically 
AZT was prepped for babies and really like mountains were moved. So I, I'm uh, excited to hear about the way ACT UP uh, spun off these nonprofits. Yes. That I've heard a bit about how that was happening in New York. It sounds like the dynamic from the Needle Exchange was you all would come up with an idea, do a volunteer project, and the city Department of Health was on your side and some federal money. So then you'd be able to get some city and federal money to keep the project going as a nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, well, another thing is at the time I was like very opposed to like working for any AIDS group. So I wasn't in on necessarily or understanding the funding mix of things as much. There may have been some private funds there. I don't really know, but, but yeah, pretty much. But cause then I ended up doing it right. Cause yeah. <laughs> in, uh, 1995, um, we started planning something called project teach. I don't remember when we came up with the name, but basically what's happening was, um, I had lunch with Jeff Miskowski and complained he had stopped going to, to ACT UP Philly meetings, but um, he was so many from ACT UP. I think he had stopped going. I can't remember. But he had, he had been formative with um, Youth Health Empowerment Project and other things. And um, he I was talking about how there was this gap in information where um, it was 1995, so there was starting to be more hope of treatment helping people stay alive longer. And there was a, such a gap between who was getting this information, who wasn't. And in Philly, a lot of it was about like race and class or primarily even race maybe. But, um, so, uh, he was like, well, let's start something. And so we started this program with fight and we, the people called project teach, which stood for treatment education activists combating HIV. And, um, it was a training program for people with HIV about treatment and activism. And so we did our first funding for that, I believe, was CDC secondary prevention funds, air quotes, secondary prevention, which meant when someone has HIV, how do you prevent progression to AIDS? That's sort of what it meant at the time. And so I think that was our first, I think we started our own and then got the CDC money. I can't really remember. And I was like, I can only work part time on this because I have to, you know, be a pure activists and not be in and I was working all my time on it and I became full-time and stuff but um project teach was a pretty awesome and is a pretty awesome project where um we also would uh like I would lead off one of the first classes by talking about how um there was uh you know this HIV definition and people around the country and around the world fought to change the definition so more women would get AIDS and then someone in the class would be like, wait, what? I'd <laughs> be like, oh, now I see you're listening, right? And so um, uh, talk about how HIV is not just medical you know, or physical, it's political, it's economic, it's social, all these things. And then so from the beginning, we'd really be like opening it up, right? And, um, and my stance throughout it, which I got some heat from some people and act up about, was like, some people thought it should be more like heavy-handed about, you should do this and, uh, and now you should join ACT UP. But I... Um, saw that it was it most sort of like ethical and right and effective to just be like, hey, why don't you check out ACT UP? So we, after we ran our first pilot class, people were like, yeah, that was great, but we want homework. Like we want this to be more like school. Like, uh, and so we're like, okay. So homework would sometimes be to check out an ACT UP meeting or ACT UP demonstration. Just like, how was that for you? What'd you think? So to treat people as like free thinking adults, you know, and not cattle, you know? So, um, 
many people from Project Teach joined ACT UP um, and, and, became, and, and there was a set of people who became core leaders in the next phase of ACT UP, you know, like John Bell, Joyce Hamilton, Abdul Hakim. Um, uh, yeah, there was a lot of people. And um, which had been our intention, in part, to like start this as an intervention to get people information and also to bring people into the HIV movement. Did that was that a part of changing the race and class demographics of ACT UP over that time? I mean, I would hazard to say it was the way of it was. I don't think there's anything in particular else that we. I mean, we had been well. There had been like a consistent and building relationship with we with um, one day at a time, which was a network of recovery houses um, that had key leaders living with HIV, like Marvin Dorn. So it was interwoven, right? So Marvin Dorn. Um, and his spouse at the time, Nadine Dorn, they were in the pilot class for Project Teach. Um, so it was sort of interwoven. And um, so there was the one day at a time relationship that was deepened through Project Teach as well. Um, so that was a part of it too. Yeah. Tell me about that shift. Well, um, the shift was that more of our members uh were African, particularly African-American people, Philadelphians, um, several of whom actually come from Baltimore, actually, because um, at the time, I think it's changed somewhat, but at the time, a lot of people um, were coming from Baltimore to Philly to quote-unquote get clean because Baltimore had no drug treatment. And in Philly, it was the time or is super easy to just say you're a recovery house and start taking half of people's check or whatever and have them live in a row house that you got donated through a church or something. Um, so there was a lot of people who had come from Baltimore, like John Bell, um, and uh, who very much, you know, well, two were two roots. Like one was John very, in his very sort of analytical and conscious way, observed and studied, act up and figured out his relationship to it and where he wanted to be in it and did it, right? And then there was also, we did, mass turnout where recovery houses had people um, working to change their lives, right, who needed stuff to do during the day and would fill buses to go to D.C. to protest, and then they would talk about, you know, how that was for them or whatever, you know. Um, so it became, it was sort of like a whole house would go. It was not optional, you know, so people would go together, um, sort of like recovery cadre or something, right? So it was like, um, and... So, uh, so several of the leaders of the recovery houses that were either part of the ODAT, the One Day at a Time umbrella, or different recovery houses, some of them joined ACT UP. Um, other ones were more like, okay, call me when we have our next thing. Um, and then there were the, as more and more people went through Project Teach, um, they would um, either become, you know, cadre of ACT UP, just people who would come and do the mobilization stuff, or come to our Monday night meetings and engage in the, the planning. Um, There's also a, one place, Community Living Room, was a project that was for people um, who were double or triple diagnosed with HIV and mental health stuff and, and for some people also like, you know, substance issues. And so we had a good relationship also with um, community living room. A number of community living room members um, were hardcore ACT UP members for many years. So it was a very mixed group, mixed in all kinds of ways um, in terms of not just race and class and serious status, but also sort of um, concurrent health challenges um, neurodivergence, things like that. Yeah, it was interesting. So these new members were largely African-American, 
coming through Project Teach and mm-hmm. working class. Yeah. What? How did uh, white members of ACT UP respond to that? Or well, the group that? had become much smaller. Um, mm-hmm. You know, throughout across ACT UP chapters and across the country, like a lot of ACT UP chapters um, ended. Like some literally died off. Um, yeah, or at people were just the remaining members were just too heartbroken, right? Um, and others like were like once Clinton got elected, felt like they could step away you know, and sort of take a break or take a breath. So we had become much smaller and more, much more uh, proportionately HIV negative, as well as remaining um, mostly white. Um, and so people were coming into a smaller group. And um, I think for this, the core of us who were involved, um, it was something we very much wanted and were like architects and involved in, you know, this transition. So, um, I, there was a, a core of, I'd say about 20 ongoing committed white, as far as I know, identified people and, and some others, um, who sort of saw through this transition and, um, some were down, either were down, like, part of making it happen or watched it happen and then, and then, you know, went their ways. I don't think anyone left because of like the transition to being more mixed in our meetings or something. What led some white members to take a step back when Clinton was elected and some white members to really focus on trying to recruit and develop black leadership? Uh, well, because, um, Clinton did come in in some ways with a mandate to do something about AIDS, you know, and so um, he was dogged on the campaign trail and made some promises and some money started coming. Um, and so I, 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 I think for people who had come in or had come to some belief that in political solutions to the HIV crisis, there was now someone to do it um, or to focus on it a different way. Um, I do think a lot of it, though, was just fatigue. Um, and it may have been somewhat, you know, structural, this sort of, like, loosely knit movement. Um, and, and, and then people, also people started getting jobs, I, I would think, in AIDS organizations or different public health stuff. Like, there were some more jobs to be had. So people shifted. They maybe were doing the same hours, but in a different setting. Um, and then, uh, for me, I mean, for me, like, HIV had always represented this, what, now more commonly is called intersectional issues and work, right? So I wasn't going anywhere, right? So because I was there on purpose, you know, not, I mean, I do, I mean, I do feel moved that part of me is, uh, was drawn to HIV activism because of my own life path where I do think that, um, you know, with, with the amount of like, Type and the amount and type of sex I had, I was protected by my race, by my class, by my geography, and in some ways by my, you know, non-queer at the time, gender or sex, from not getting HIV. But otherwise, you know, it it, it was luck of the draw that it wasn't me, right? So I have a personal identification with happening to be HIV negative that in some ways was luck, but in many ways was privilege. So my intersectional analysis of HIV also comes from my understanding of, of my own sort of privilege. Um... And then in that era, uh, the Clinton era, I mean, it had all, 
it, it, and it continued to become more and more clear that when treatment was available, like that there was there were some people who were getting information and access, and there were ones who weren't, and it was tracking along like the epidemic had tracked along lines of marginalization. So you do have a sector of people who became positive because of who happened to be gay, but otherwise were going to sort of had the otherwise had resources in life, and then there was like everyone else, you know. So I was sort of sticking with the everybody else. Um, that includes a lot of gay and queer people, but um, also is about race and class and drug use and other things. So I, a lot of us were in it because of that and stayed in it because of that. And we were also continuing to do like, you know, stuff about syringe exchange and um, women's access to clinical trials. And um, we had a imprisoned ACT UP member, Gregory Smith, who was in prison in New Jersey for, he had been serving a robbery charge and, uh, you know, prior to, knowing I think many people and act up people met him because of his case where he was in for robbery in New Jersey he was from Philly and he um was attacked by prison guards uh when advocating for his his health care and uh was accused of biting and spitting and sentenced to attempted manslaughter for another um 12 and a half to 25 years and so we had a relationship with Greg and worked on his appeal um where he which was lost and then supported him after that after legal organizations stopped supporting him you know because he was no longer a case you know and um, so we were working on with Greg, and then um, just we ended up working on issues of prison healthcare in Philly, and you know a lot of there just there was a lot of stuff to do. And then at some point it turned into like Medicaid managed care was coming down the pike, and um, so obviously by this time we were doing some hardcore like organizing and some policy work, and not following, not so much there there had been an ACT UP network nationally that sort of d d dissolved or devolved, and so we were very much our own force uh, by the late, mid and late 90s. What year did Project Teach start? We started our first class in um, January of 1996, which was um, very soon after um, Jonathan Lacks, who is one of the people who had been very involved with Philadelphia Fight and, and ACT UP, he um, uh, died um, after being one of the first people to get protease inhibitors. He went to the um, emergency room during a snowstorm and was misdiagnosed and they didn't catch he was having a heart attack which may or may not have been treatment related and he died so that was a big, pretty big deal that he died right before this class started so that's how I remember it you know you mentioned living in the anarchist uh, group house scene in West Philly yeah tell me about that uh, well it was really helpful um, as far as not having to be gainfully employed a lot of time because it was low budget and it was very supportive I remember like I was noticing, like, for a bunch of months or whatever, it always seemed like a bunch of us who were in ACT UP, we would come home Monday night from the meetings, they were long, and we were tired, and there would be, like, this pot of food, and, and you know, then my roommate Mimi was like, you guys, I make it because I know you're coming home from ACT UP, like, it's on purpose, you know, so it's that kind of thing, you know, and so um, it uh, was a um, supportive, easy, fun environment to live, in which to live, um, that, you know, it, it, it at times would go into and out of sort of self-criticism and, self, you know, like angst and not and um, about who we were and what we were doing and why. But um, it, was, it was pretty formative and great for a lot of people. And a lot of people come into the Arrogance community and be a part of ACT UP or learn from ACT UP and sort of have credited it with their, on, their next phases or ongoing movement work, you know, as sort of like a training ground for doing stuff and, and figuring out how to make change happen. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate that I got to live in that way. It was helpful. 
Give us a picture. Of okay. That scene. Well, when I first moved, okay. We've never encountered it. <laughs> well, there are these big houses, um, so lots of people can live in them. And so I end up, uh, well, one place, that, the place I lived for a long time, I think lived for seven years in a place called Not Squat, which had been Hell Squat, which was a squatted um, four story home that people bought at a sheriff's sale for, I think, like, $800 or $2,000 or something also by going and intimidating other buyer potential bidders because people with developers would come I mean developers with a small d because this is like Philly you know in that era like there weren't really like big time developers but like so uh they bought the house I moved in like six months after it was purchased and um at the time there I remember there was like abandoned car out front where like like tumbleweeds sort of blew in and so like it was starting like it was like going back to nature and there were raccoons living under this car and um we had like uh, the only toilet was in the kitchen like behind a screen and we didn't have hot water yet but then people people there were people lived there who had skills and would somehow sometimes strong arm the rest of us into helping sometimes they they didn't work who put in hot water and built bathrooms and things like that I had a stove in my room that was my heat because I guess it had been apart maybe apartments at some point but so I heated with the you know the blue gas of the stove for a couple winters and um and we would put in I think $15 a week for food and I think pay I don't remember what I want so it wasn't one so we just kept it in the box we had like cash in a lockbox and um have house meetings and uh parties and um we the, It was a twin house, so the next door house had been uh, gutted in a fire, and people had purchased that before the squat was purchased, so people sort of co-owned these houses, and rebuilt the porch. And that created a lot of, like, community goodwill when people were like, oh, the hippies rebuilt the porch or whatever, you know? So um, it was a nice porch. And then eventually um, we were able to, you know, it, friends or members of the community were able to get another place across the street and then squatted the place next door from that for a while. And so, um, and I ended up with some people buying a house on the market, so-called. We got, like, uh, it was one four-story house and plus four apartments next door that had all been an old funeral home that we bought for $55,000 with an owner-financed mortgage. That was my big thing of being able to do, you know, to help make that happen. Um, and I, I remember we moved in and, like, we turned the heat on. The heat went on. And I was like, whoa, hey, <laughs> that's good. Um, and that was also, we, that was a house that, um, the initial like family group included members of ACT UP who were, uh, people of color and or HIV positive, um, current and former drug users. So that was a, uh, a move, an intentional move that had its challenges. Um, and, but that was sort of something we tried that I was able to help try out in the community. And, uh, yeah, it was, I remember that it was nice cause I didn't have to like, make plans with people. I'd just like sit around in my kitchen wherever I lived and people would just show up and it was fun and it was just ready-made community. So that was, that felt really fantastic, you know. Yeah, I yeah. have a lot of memories. Yeah, I right? do. <laughs> <laughs> also it was like, you know, when I lived in Nasquad for for a big chunk of it, it was like I was living there with my, I had this partner and we were living there together and then act up together and then we got in a relationship with um, a person who lived across the street um, and then my partner also got in a relationship with her roommate and they all joined ACT UP. So we're all in ACT UP. So that was a little complicated, but you know, fine at times and great at times and challenging at times. So that there was that aspect too. Yeah. And how did you 
talk about your gender and sexuality during the 90s? Well, during, that was a long span of the 90s. It really yeah. varied. So, um, you know, in the beginning of the 90s, like in 1990, I was straight, female. And then I like came out as bisexual and, and then came to take on like dyke, butch, leather dyke, different like aspects trucking around there and then I had like in the mid 90s like what I called my femme fancy phase where I was like it wasn't really femme it was more like glamorous as I thought it like sort of trashy glamour um longer hair uh the clothes were like more expansive you know so that was kind of fun and um for a while I had green hair a lot then too that was good like the um it was Manic Panic Enchanted Forest, which actually my boyfriend has now, and I put in my hair a couple weeks ago, and it sticks because of the gray. You know, I had it for a week again. That was really great. But um, And then in the... Yeah, so like when we started Project Teach, sometimes I was known like as the girl with the green hair. So I would wear like... I would bike to work in my bike shorts and then like throw this a little frock on with my, you know, combat boots or whatever, you know? So... And then, um, and then I just got, yeah, then I was like, okay, no, yeah, I really am sort of like this butch or trans or whatever. I, I, I just feel like it was sort of like I didn't really, sometimes I worried about the language and sometimes I didn't. And then I, uh, I just, there was a certain phase where it really transitioned more where like in my sex life, I felt more male identified when I was doing it. And, and then my gender presentation was sort of shifting more anchor like core into like gender non-conforming or gender I think a gender queer I was talking about be like a gender queer was my thing for a while um and I think that part of it was like I was sort of locked into that those couple of relationships where I was sort of more of a fixed object and when those ended I shifted more but that was like 2002 um, when I first started coming to New York and stuff, I was more tra becoming more trans identified. Yeah, so that was a, that was a, the trajectory. So before yeah. we get to New York, <laughs> yeah. is there anything more on the nineties <sighs> span that you mm. want to uh, include in this interview? Um, well, yeah, I think the part of it was like. When, not having been, like, a queer youth and then coming into, like, dyke lesbian stuff when I did. Like, I came out as, as I was, like, 23, I think, and my girlfriend and others who had been out just a few more years more than me, like, they, everyone all of a sudden was, like, discovering, like, more expansive sex. So I, like, hit it right on time where, like, people were like, I have this thing. I was like, okay. You know, so it, because there had been these, like, lesbian sex war type things. Like, the, I don't know, they were actively involved in it, but it had, there, there wasn't, it was just a funny, it was a great, I had great timing, basically. So I felt like I had some really good timing. So I think in part, like, my gender uh, expression, I don't know the words, but my, like, gender naming or whatever didn't really need to be outside of dyke because it was super it was like blowing up right so there was a lot for me there um so uh that was pretty exciting so i just want to give a give a give a shout out to that <laughs> good thanks for that because that was really good so um and there was a lot in there for me you know um 
and uh, yeah. So that gives us a pretty good picture of the 90s in Philadelphia. Uh, tell <laughs> what brought you to New York. Okay, so, well, there's, there's a piece in about 1999. We started working on uh, an act up on um, global HIV treatment access and global trade issues. Uh, we were sort of tricked into global it. Global trade was a big Yeah, well, we were sort of tricked into 99. it by Rainforest Action Network. <laughs> <laughs> I went to this... Um, research conference, you know, I've been continuing to do research advocacy and train people about research, and I went to this research conference where, like, someone connected the head of Rainforest Action Network to me because we, he was trying to get, they were trying to get one of the people who were making, like, a keynote speech at this conference to speak out against um, rainforest logging and the Africa Growth and Opportunities Act um, on the premise that both, that, that there was, like, potential cures or treatments to be found in the rainforest that were going to be lost and, and other things, right? So... Um, fast forward a couple years, I went to the Allied Media Conference and heard a presentation from this great rad PR person who said, when you're making a coalition, look for unlikely allies. Like, for example, we are working on this Africa trade bill, you know, and we got the AIDS people in it by saying that there would be potential cures. And I'm like, that was me. Wait a second. But um, what happened... and other, there were, it may have happened anyway in other ways, but like what happened was we had more links to, there had been people who were, um, had, they had a leaked State Department memo saying that the, um, particularly the office of the vice president, um, who was about to run for president, was um, threatening trade sanctions or threatening like putting South Africa on notice as they were updating their post-apartheid um, rules, laws, that would allow for generic production of medication that couldn't otherwise be affordable, including HIV medication. So there was like, Jamie Love, this policy guy, was running around with this memo and like, hey, you know, and got to us activists where we we're like, what? So we started this big campaign, both us and us people in Act Up New York and, and um, people like um, Alan Berkman, who was a radical HIV doctor. Um, and, he, and we started doing these protests that said, um, we targeted uh, Al Gore on the campaign trail that said uh, that their campaign was called um, AIDS Apartheid 2000, you know, like we had like campaign and, and um, also people um, invaded, took over the office of the U.S. trade representative in D.C. and occupied her office. And what year? That, this was uh, 1999, I believe, or 2000, Charlene Barshevsky. And um, so, so, uh, my activists, my comrades and, and ACT UP, Philly and New York and otherwise, like, they did, uh, interrupted three out of four of Al Gore's f- speeches announcing he was running for president. First in Tennessee, then New Hampshire, then New York. And the, with this banner that said AIDS drugs for Africa and overheard, I think it was Donna Brazil saying, HIV is not supposed to be an issue in this election. <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing the press work from home, uh, or at least from my office, and um, it was the first time that I had this experience where the press was coming to us and being like, who are you people? You know, instead of us trying to be like, cover us, please. Um, so we had a lot of momentum. And so we had this really multifaceted, amazing um, uh, campaign and alliance and, and led in many ways by um, treatment action campaign in South Africa and other groups where we, um, like, during the battle in Seattle at the WTO, that was 2000, right? The, 99. 1999. Okay, so we had a 
protest at the White House that we called reporters and said, we're the consolation prize since you didn't get to go to Seattle. We're having a protest at the White House about the, you know, the, the, how the, they're trying to block access to, to AIDS drugs. And so there was at one point on, on one of the stations, there was like split screen. Here are the riots in Seattle and here's protesters at the White House. And one of, there were like two actual concrete things that Clinton announced as, that were victories from that mobilization and one was they said they would not pursue trade sanctions against countries for making generic HIV medication. So, and I forget what the other one was, it was labor related. So that was all very exciting. And um, then these planes flew into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and we were days away from, we were, I was working on, oh, so we started this group called Health Gap, which uh, Health Global Access Project. And I was working half-time at Byte and half-time as an organizer for HealthGap. Um, and uh, I was focusing on, at one point, we were going to have, there was this big um, anti-corporate globalization protest against the IMF meeting that was going to be happening in D.C. in September of 2011. And I was working with, like, labor groups to have a labor solidarity breakfast about HIV the morning before the big mobilization and other stuff and what going year? to DC a lot. Uh, 20, two, oh, 2001. Right, 2011. Right, right. right. 2001, yeah. right. So I was working on that and it was supposed to be like September 27th or 28th or something. And then on September 11th, these planes flew into the World Trade Center and I was like, oh, all right. So then what do I do with my life now, right? So, um, I went to Ida in Tennessee for a week <laughs> uh, and hung What's out. Ida? Ida's this uh, radical ferry community. So I just went and hit out there for a week when the mobilization was supposed to happen and um, it didn't happen. We decided, everyone decided, well, we need to cancel this. And then um, the reporters that had been covering the global trade issues got shifted to bioterrorism, you know, stuff, you know, covering our stuff. And it also led me to some questions like, what am I doing with my life and all this stuff. And so one of the minor things that happened is I personally was looking to do something else and like figure out how to, what was next for the HIV movement, right? Uh, and this time where there's like non-profitization, demobilization, what do we do? Like, how do we sustain a national movement? How do we learn from the anti-corporate globalization movement? Like, what are we doing? So I applied for this fellowship in New York that Jeff Niskowski told me about that was called the Charles H. Revson Fellowship on the Future of the City of New York or something that's at was at Columbia University that ended a couple years ago where 10 people who are like mid-career, mid-life do-gooders and troublemakers in New York would get to go fuck around at Columbia for a year, I mean two semesters, and get a stipend. That was by no way enough to live on in New York that you weren't supposed to work. But I was from Philly, so um, it was it was pretty much enough funding for me. So I applied and, and got accepted as like their experiment in regionalism, and because I went to and I went to the interview and um, I thought I blew it because they were like, so what what's next for it was like six or eight people interviewing me and they're like what's next for the anti corporate globalization movement and I basically said, well you know. If you're going to have all different kinds of people protesting and mobilizations, you have to feed them, and it's about getting the hoagies to the buses, you know? And one of them looked at me and said, really, that's what's next is getting the hoagies <laughs> to the buses? And I was like, yes. And I went home, I was like, ah, oh, fuck. But um, it turns out that was the right answer. <laughs> Why was that the right well, answer? it was, at least it wasn't the wrong answer, you know? It was like, here, I'm in the trenches. And I, and I was like, oh, no, because she was like, 
really? That's what it is? I was like, well, that's why I need some time away to think <laughs> about the bigger picture. Because I'm getting the hoagies on the buses. Yeah. So they let me in. And so I started living in New York part-time, and I broke up with those two partners and um, started trying to figure out I, what was next. And I took um, the Life and Times of Malcolm X seminar with Manning Marable. Wow. Yeah, and I took a social, a, a social movements class and failed it because I didn't write the paper. I'm not a very good student, but it was great being able to hang around. I went to the gym a lot. And I, I, I was starting to figure out, like, like, what am I apart from Philly, you know, kind of thing. And I was sure I was going to go back to Philly. Like, in my interview, they're like, would you consider staying in New York afterwards? I'm like, no, I'm a Philadelphian. So then I moved to New York <laughs> um, and started this uh, group called CHAMP, Community HIV AIDS Mobilization Project. Uh, and the idea was to look at uh, what turned out to be, like, network strategies for social movements in HIV, but I didn't know that that was a thing when I... I didn't know that was what I did, was build networks, you know? And um, uh, so, like, networks and communication strategies a lot of, and, and digital communications, you know, we had, like, a good... Uh, we ended up having a really robust email organizing list before many people did. And, and then we ended up working on HIV prevention um, as an issue because I thought we'd work on treatment, and then one of the people I was talking to, you know, sort of trying to figure out what to do was, like, um, nobody's working on treatment. I mean, on, on prevention. Everyone's working on treatment. You wanted to do that. And I was like, oh, prevention, that doesn't really work, does it? Like, there's needle exchange and perinatal transmission, but that's it, right? They're like, well, you better look at that. And so we um, ended up being this group that um, we had a sticker that said, put the sex and drugs back in HIV prevention and um, did some things. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I don't know what to say about that, but uh, we formed this group and we were a nonprofit, God help us, for like seven years uh, before we couldn't sustain it anymore. And some really great people like Lee Chow and Kenyon Farrow um, and Sean Barry worked with Champ one time or another and um, we figured some things out. And we also did some things like insider outsider stuff, like, for example, there were early trials on PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis, which turns out to be an incredibly um, effective form of HIV prevention that I myself am now using, um, that uh, the early trials were opposed by uh, ACT UP Paris and some other activists, and we helped, again, sort of have the more policy people mobilize to the degrees appropriate and necessary so the trials didn't get shut down. Um, and um, we were sort of on, on, we dogged CDC on various things, you know, um, during a conservative administration to have them be more bold or they, they, they were throwing money down the drain on this, this stupid reporting process. Some pretty like inside baseball stuff, you know, as well as um, speaking out for the intersectional justice issues um, in HIV prevention, which, you know, HIV prevention is everything. Because it's about economics, it's about where you live, it's about if your family's more likely to be imprisoned or you are, it's, it's, it is the sex and drugs and, and, and race and class and gender stuff, right? So what years was CHAMP? Uh, CHAMP was, we um, started in 2003-ish, and then we ended in 2010-ish. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking about CHAMP. So prevention organizing is challenging in a different way than treatment organizing because there isn't a self-identified constituency around exactly. prevention. 
Yeah. So, yeah. like, how did you... You mentioned mobilizing policy people. You mentioned networking with other kinds of organizations. But how did you deal with the fact that there wasn't a community of people out there, like, wanting to organize around right. prevention for themselves? Right. Yeah, I mean, there was one person. There was Mark McLaren at GMHC, who Greg Gonzalez had worked to get hired, who was the one full-time prevention policy person in HIV in the United States, as far as I knew at the time. And he was on our, he joined our board and he was great. Um, and uh, he talked about, he said, HIV prevention is the bell that doesn't ring, right? And, and, and um, if it works well, no one notices. That's the thing. And no one's really, well now, Gilead, God love them, figured out a way to make money off of it. But in general, and at the time, it was like, no one can make money off of HIV prevention. No one's making money off selling condoms, you know, things like that. It's not a big thing. So um, I think, what, so, so what did we do? We, we went to, well, I don't even remember we had the name yet, but maybe we had a name, Champ, I don't know. But I was at this National HIV Prevention Conference, and CDC was about to dramatically change sort of their priorities for funding HIV prevention. They sort of hadn't told anybody, and they, they, they sprung it on people at this conference. So we... I and others who are like HIV activists or policy folks had a town meeting at this conference. We were with the constituents, right? And we collected three or 400 names. Um, and I took the names. I was like, oh, I'll take the names. You know, so it's sort of like that building up through, so there was that constituency of people who understood how outrageous things were and cared a lot about it. You know, that's sort of people who are in deep. Like policy. No, like prevention oh. workers. Oh, people who were at this yeah. conference that was about people were front presenting on staff. their models. Yeah, well, the frontline staff who got to go to a conference in Atlanta, you know, medium line staff, right. Right? right? Like medium line staff. And so that was, so the HIV workforce, for lack of a better term, right? So there was that. And then we thought of CHAMP as the group that were, were for, yeah, for people who are in HIV to keep or put an activist hat on even though sometimes they had to take it off and sit at their desk. We envisioned people who were like frustrated and they either could or couldn't speak out in their worker community, but they could through us, right? So we were that. And then, um, uh, so we, and we also, um, Lee Chow, when he came to work with Champ, he had been working with um, the um, AIDS Treatment Data Network on a project that was focused on mobilizing to get people HIV treatment and work on pricing and access issues. So he had a big set of contacts that he brought in from there. We basically just, you know, knew how to like make a, collect a lot of names, like just relentlessly collected names at conferences and gatherings. And um, uh, so we appealed to people's activist sense of things. It was sort of like, hey, you may have heard or been in AIDS activism and you're not seeing it today. That's what we're doing in sort of a, um, a national framework. How interesting. So, yeah. and organizing in a way that relies on this huge profess professional apparatus of yeah. aid services um, with uh, drawing on the mythology exactly. and inspiration of yeah. AIDS activism history. Yeah. Like when I was pitching us to funders, I said, you have in the HIV world a tremendous body of people who are organized um, professionally and culturally or socially, but not politically. And we're here to do that with your help. You know, so and I kept going to these funders who were like, um, med it's not like there's a million of them, but a handful of them who were gay men who had been in ACT UP in some way or another or like thought themselves of having been in ACT UP. And I would meet with them and they would say, well, I'm skeptical. 
And anytime they said they were skeptical, we ended up getting funded. So that was an interesting experience to have, you know? Um, and there had been so, like a report that came out from Ford Foundation, HIV Advocacy at the Crossroads, I think it was called. And um, there were three groups in it that were cited as having been successful in sort of the previous era. And it was um, Health Gap, Global AIDS Alliance, and maybe the Federal AIDS Policy Partnership or ACT Up. I can't remember who the third one was, but I was like, hey, guess what? I was like a pivotal person in all three. So how about you now invest in this initiative we're doing now? So um, that was helpful. So who would fund you guys? Uh, we got our first funding was um, from uh, a little bit from Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, a um, little like $3,000, I think. And then, uh, well, the first thing that I did was I was on unemployment and did some um, consult, you know, like consulting jobs and put it into the organization. <laughs> And so it was self-funded. I was the only staff person. And actually, ethically, like, we were about to shut down if we didn't get enough funding to hire other staff because I'm like, this is being a consultant, not being an organization, you know? And then we, so we get little bits here and there. So we got uh, Broadway Cares. And then we got funding from the Public Welfare Foundation from Adisa Douglas, who is a visionary um, person working in philanthropy. And, um, and then Ford Foundation kicked in. And when they kicked in, we're like, okay, it seems like we can give this a go. And then we came to get funding at one time or another from, you know, Mac AIDS Foundation. Um, I can't remember. I have some blocks. It was a lot. Uh, but um, we built up to having at our peak about a, maybe like a, I don't know if we ever achieved it, but we envisioned a $700,000 a year budget. And at one point we had seven full or part-time staff people. It was, and it was, it was not, sustainable um and all along we probably should have been a project of someone else some people said to me it's a shame you have to be an executive director um and i have a lot to say about that maybe for another day okay. yeah <laughs> uh so what was your life like during these years of running champ when you weren't at work um well it varied a lot like at some point a couple years into it, I moved to um, Rhode Island because I um, fell in love with someone who was living there and um, became partners. So we had two small offices for a while. So I was working remotely and I also got very sick um, with a like mystery, seemingly neurological and autoimmune condition. Um, and then I also was trying to become a parent and ended up conceiving and birthing a child. So a lot was going on um, and uh, a lot of struggle and transitions and as well as great times, you know? So it was complicated and then um, also the challenges of running a startup or movement nonprofit that are myriad and thorny. Um, so it was pretty tricky times yeah let's talk about those things <laughs> in, in sequence okay. so uh tell me about being sick um so i started having i've always had sort of like funny little health things that are out you know just just been sort of like a my, like not big s sickly child like a sickly child god i would and i people would joke like I always go like hiv conferences and i would have like some cold or some virus or something and people with hiv are like why are you sick all the time you know um, but just prone to little things. And then I um, started having mysterious symptoms in 2006 after having like some sort of 
seemingly sinus infection or something, I started having nerve pain that didn't go away and then was moving through my body and then my body went numb and then they found lesions in my spine, which basically means um, sites of inflammation. And they said, okay, well, if this happens again, you have MS. And if it doesn't, you have this thing called uh, idiopathic clinical syndrome or something. You know, we don't know. And so then um, I got pregnant and a few weeks into it, I got symptoms again, and then I had a miscarriage, not related to the symptoms, but then I got the MRI and found out, got the MS diagnosis right after I had the, pretty soon after I had the miscarriage. Um, so I had four years with a MS diagnosis and, and being on MS treatment and um, then went off pretty quick. But then I conceived again and gave birth to my child and had the most significant attack of whatever this was that probably started before I gave birth, but like two, two months, within two months postpartum, I was in a lot of pain and weakness and um, escalating symptoms and stuff that I went on hardcore treatment, like the new generation of MS treatment. And uh, then I, when I ended up moving here, I went off treatment and had another attack and my diagnosis was changed to neuromyelitis optica, NMO, now called Neuromyelitis Optica Spectrum Disorder, NMOSD, which is an official rare disease that I'm atypical for, as well as atypical for MS. But it's like some weird autoimmune neurodegenerative something. And um, was I was on immunosuppressive infusions, uh, rituxan, about once a year for a bunch of years, and now I'm not on anything. And in fact, um, my the hormonal aspects of my gender transition in some ways is a strategic intervention that's my best guess at how to handle now having three autoimmune diagnoses, all of which are much more prevalent in quote-unquote women. So I have gone to gone a hormonal transformation that we don't know, but my neurologist is like, hey, that's a reasonable guess, maybe protective against... Um, conditions, right? So of course there's no research on that, but um, I do think it is when we look at gender and hormonal transmission and uh, transition and you know what we can do, cyborgian interventions, that looking at the capacity to strategically adjust our own hormonal compositions as a health intervention is significantly under-adjusted. Um, so right now I um, consider that having um, high normal, high level of a normal testosterone range and, and having my estrogen suppressed is my treatment for a cluster of conditions that I've now been diagnosed with. So you've spent your life organizing around health I know, it's pretty issues. deep, right? Yeah. yeah. Are there <laughs> any reflections on confronting that personally yeah well the first is if you're on high dose steroids don't email everyone you know at four in the morning when you can't sleep that's something that happened early (laughs) (laughs) this is over disclosure of like the minutia of like going through a health journey um but um yeah i um well dealing with these chronic conditions and also dealing with um you know trans healthcare in all respects throughout having um, employer-based health insurance, either my own or my spouse's or partner's, um, 
it's still like hard as fuck, you know, like it's just really so much time to manage the administration of one's own healthcare. That's one thing, um, especially, um, you know, I have conditions which are probably either, I mean, we don't know, but likely are trauma informed, let's just say from my own background and, um, or exacerbated. Um, so it's just intense to deal with and it affects people. It comes from our intense lives in some ways. And then also, um, uh, self, I've called the tyranny of self care. You know, this idea that if I could just, um, you know, eat the right kind of food and exercise the right amount that I will somehow like, it's my own fault if I'm sick or healthy. Like, I think that this, this whole thing of like, like at a certain point, um, yeah. And I think it has to do with, with, in my case, with also like choosing pharmacologically, like what I'm doing to deal with these conditions because I have a lot of agency, right? And I go to providers that sort of look to me or allow me to like dictate a lot of stuff. But at a certain point, that doesn't necessarily help me because it means that I am on the hook, right? Like at one point, I was considering whether or not to reinfuse with this immunosuppressive treatment. And I was talking to a mental health provider about it. And she was like, well, you could make it a non-decision decision. I was like, what? She's like, well, you're not really sure whether to do it or not. And the doctor said that she prefers that you do it. So you could just do it because the doctor prefers it. And I was like, wow. <sighs> you know? <laughs> um, that was a really great moment for me, right? So... Um, there's a lot of like the, 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 the flip side, the, the downside of being a highly empowered healthcare consumer, right? Is being a highly empowered healthcare consumer. Um, and then also having a health strategy now, or like, I don't know if you call it a wellness strategy, whatever, that involves using my certain aspects of my gender related care as a uh, medical intervention is not something that like, my health insurance is necessarily down with or, you know, I switched providers to that I thought were like trans competent in primary care and it turns out they're not. So like now I didn't get my estrogen suppression for like three or four months because I switched insurance and they couldn't handle it. And uh, it's just a lot, you know, and um, uh, I have a my girlfriend who's like incredibly skilled at negotiating with uh, and or like going through labyrinths of health insurance provision has been, uh, without her, like, I don't know how I'd be handling my health care or my bills or, or any of it. And, and that's me as someone with a really good income and a lot of privilege and also being still fairly able-bodied. I had these attacks and I have some disability that's pretty, like invisible disabilities. I have fatigue now and then and stuff, but, um, you know, I get around and, and all that. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's, uh, myriad the, um, issues plus like just having, as far as anyone can tell, I have these conditions that in some ways may have to do with having my T-cells, you know, going amok rather than disappearing. It's like I have, like, reverse AIDS or something. It's just really weird, you know, like, really? I have that? Like, did I make this up? You know, it's just really is kind of a mindfuck. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm doing well, so that's good for whatever reason. Anything more you'd like to say on this health? I just have so much to say. I mean, there's just so much. I mean, I just, there's also a lot to be said. Now I work in um, digital publishing um, and on, 
digital communications on health and uh, the extent to which uh, the market and the pharmaceutical industry determines what information even exists about healthcare and medicine because of what they sponsor and don't sponsor. If you look at uh, online communications, is another area now that I think people aren't thinking or talking as much about um, or in this era of like, you know, fake news or whatever. Like, what about the non-news? What about what's not on there? Like the state of digital communications on trans health is abysmal. It's really abysmal. So um, I, I knew it was abysmal sort of as a consumer or whatever or a trans person. But now as a um, digital health communications producer or something, I can see even more how much there isn't there. And, uh, you know, no one's, it's because it's not in anyone's economic interest to do it, you know. So, uh, or sex, uh, sex communicate, everything online is about sex, but there's nothing about sex, you know. So I could say a lot. <laughs> um, but also the experience, I also like to talk about the experience of like, uh, and the privilege of being able to have a fair amount of reproductive support and freedom and justice in my journey as a, gender nonconforming and trans person and getting to um, conceive and uh, give birth to a child. Tell um, us about that. Well, it's just great. Um, so, like, I always wanted to be a parent, and then all of a sudden I was sort of... Um, it seemed expedient to be able to use my own body to do so, um, since I thought I probably had that capacity. And uh, then all of a sudden I was, like, in my late 30s and hadn't done it yet. And so... Um, my um, partner at the time and I were both, so she's a um, cis woman, and um, we were taking turns, basically, a couple months on and off trying to conceive, you know, and um, I was able to, it was a pro about two and a half years before it really stuck, right? And um, I was able to go through the process of um, conceiving and being pregnant and giving birth at a time where I was also becoming more and more uh, just fond, I would say, of my gender identity becoming more male, you know? So, um, and, uh, feeling like, okay, I'll have this kid and then I also will have, not have to sort of biologically or hormonally hang on to this capacity anymore. So I was also excited about that. Um, but, so I didn't identify as, as male in day-to-day -day life when I was pregnant yet I was often perceived as that so that was kind of funny being like five or six months pregnant and on this the subway in New York and getting called sir you know I was just and um uh or we would go in for visits and my they would you know indicate to my partner that she should come in I was like no it's me you know um and then we switched to, we were able to do a home birth so I didn't have to go into um clinical settings for my uh, prenatal care about halfway through, through the birth, and I was able to have a home birth. And after I gave a ho had a home birth, I turned 42 um, 10 days before my child was born and uh, had this home birth. And the day after the home birth, the midwife came back to do the wellness check, and she was like, I, I really hand it to you, you know, having a, having a home birth at your age. That's, that's, it, you know, it is harder. And like they didn't tell me till the day after I gave birth. I was like, oh, thanks, because they want you to be able to come through with your plan. And then being able to nurse my child um, as a, you know, trans person and, and see my child grow thanks to my body. It was just a very, very affirming process. And to be able to do it while ducking out of many of the gendered aspects of it. But then things would happen like we would, I would go to like, anytime I'd go to like the, 
the child the few times I had to go like the baby store bye bye baby whatever they're called like babies are us and like on the wall there would be like spoons but they don't just have baby feeding spoons they have girl spoons and boy spoons like literally feeding gender spoon feeding gender binary gender to babies and I would just freak out and have to flee you know I just couldn't take it you know so um I was I it was a real privilege to be able to avoid a lot of that um sort of gender baby gender industrial complex (laughs) this is so interesting so you alluded to all these issues right so often pregnancy is a time that people are hyper gendered as female by the outside world yeah and you managed you were trans and gender non-conforming at the time like uh not necessarily male identified Mm -hmm. but uh, and managed to really sidestep some of that or not yeah. be too stressed out about that. No, I was totally affirmed. I also had um, a secondary partner at the time who was just super, like, sexually affirming. And I also have, like, a, I don't know, like, I, I my whole life I've been more readily available to pass as male or at least non-female because of my um, body shape, you know, is not curvy or things like that. And so that sort of continued until late in my pregnancy. And so I just wore like, you know, big pants or whatever. Like it was just, yeah. So I, I w- it was an incredibly gender affirming experience for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I recall it. Yeah. I was able to avoid so much of that. Yeah. It was great. Um, yeah. <laughs> Is there more you'd like to say on the pregnancy or trying to get pregnant or um, the giving birth? I didn't realize that by going the home birth route, I would be able to opt out of the, um, that even the prenatal visits would be at home. That was awesome. That was so great. Like just being able to not get into that whole system and not have to go to the hospital was just amazing. That was just really um, great as a trans person. And um, I think, uh, yeah, that's about it. You know, for me, and that got tied in with like being sick afterwards was kind of an in- intense thing. So, um, but uh, yeah, it was just an overall privilege to be able to do it. felt like it shouldn't be a privilege, but it, I just feel really grateful that I got to have that experience. Yeah. So the arc of your gender identity here in the 90s, <laughs> Dyke was this very expansive, yeah. open-ended category or yeah. word. And then... At this point, you're trans, you're genderqueer, you're gender nonconforming. Was there a way that you talked about that uh, in the years leading up to your pregnancy and around your pregnancy? I think it was like genderqueer. Yeah. Still like, but I think for a while I was saying butch trans, right? I was sort of like, because it was sort of both. And, and also in my, like, I was like exclusively male identified in my sex life and like BDSM stuff, you know, and... um so it just became, uh, and also like uh, in my day-to-day life, I had a name change. You know, I started using JD more in my day-to-day life. Um, so that just sort of grew. Uh, so it was fairly like organic or something. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just, it just emerged on it so I emerged on my own or something like every once in a while people would be like are you transitioning I'm like I don't know or, or did you transition I don't know like, I didn't really know or people would ask what name I preferred and I'd say I don't I don't have a preference or they'd say what's your preferred pronoun and I said I don't have one um, I didn't like they but like he or she I didn't really care 
And then I and then at a certain point I did care. <laughs> when did that happen? Uh, well, then I moved to New York. Um, my partner, who my parenting partner, and I um, broke up, and we both moved to different parts of Brooklyn and co-parent the kid uh, in twenty eleven. And when did you give birth? Uh, in December of two thousand nine. Okay. And so. About a year and a half later, moved back to New York, and uh, that's when I, um, I still didn't really have a preference. Um, oh, I think I may have, also I started doing testosterone when the kid was about a year old, at a very low dose cream, and um, in part for, again, for, for health stuff as much as gender stuff. Um, and I immediately seemed to help with like energy and fatigue stuff as well. And so, so I went on and off and then um, a couple years ago raised the dose more. And I think that was around the time that I started, you know, I don't know like what's, what's uh cause and what's effect, right? Of like doing more testosterone, feeling more male identified. Um, so I think, and then I, I, when I started a new job three years ago, I uh, I embraced my first name, um, and I stay in the same movement. It was it's a publishing job in HIV, um, but so it's I'm work, but I'm still working with people I've worked with for many years using this this new name that many of them didn't know, and then about a year and a half ago, I realized after realizing I really did have a preferred pronoun, I really did have. You know, I didn't want to use the other name at all anymore and things like that. I switched my um, pronouns and switched my legal documents and just have been able to really enjoy switch the bathroom. I, I just, I really hadn't anticipated like what a tremendous relief it would be to use the men's room. I really, it's just, there's this absence of anxiety and discomfort that I've had since childhood that I didn't know about explicitly that has to do with that, like being puzzled by girls when I was three or four years old. Like it really, you know, it, it's, my transition has been more affirming than I realized it could be. It's, I, I'm just so, yeah, I'm so grateful for that. And what was the relationship between Giving, being pregnant, giving mm-hmm. birth, having a child, and then uh, transitioning further? Well, uh, once I had the child, again, like I was like, oh, well, I don't need this reproductive capacity anymore, you know, as far as like hormones and stuff. And, um, and then also like having a child, going, th- seeing my child at these different ages um, connects me to my own history. Um, and also seeing the gendered worlds of children and uh, just my relationship with my child, let's just say, has really allowed me to and encouraged me to just fully live into my gender. Um, so it's been, um, yeah, like it, it's just been very, it, having a kid has really been an incentive in a way. Um and when, oh, when my kid was born, as I was pregnant, I was like, well, what's my kid going to call me, right? And um, Liz, her other parent, knew she wanted to be mommy, and I didn't really feel like dad. 
I didn't want to be like people do these names like Baba or something, but already I'm such an old parent. I didn't want anything that was sort of grand, could be conceived as grandparents like, you know? And so I was walking in a park in Rhode Island and then I thought about pair, like short for parent. It's French for father, but that wasn't right. The French, I don't have a relationship to the French language or anything. So it was like pair for parent, P A R E. So I decided I would be pair and it really felt right. So my child's been calling me pair. Um, and then recently, pair the pair like pair the parent, right? And then recently she discussed with me that um, I was her dad, like pair the dad. I was her dad who she calls pair. I'm like, that sounds good. I'm game for that, you know? Um, and uh, so she had she had been um, calling my ex-partner, was like a step, was her step-parent. She was calling daddy and then we broke up and now I'm dad. And so, but now I do feel more dad, I guess, so. You know, I've been sort of, it's up to her, right? But, um, so her friends have called me Pear, like as a name, like instead of JD, they call me Pear, so that's kind of cute. But um, also as, when I pick her up at school and stuff, she said, well, people think you're my dad, so you're my dad. I'm like, okay. In the past, she'd been like, well, you gave birth to me, so really you are my mama, but I don't call you that. Like she had that analysis for a while, but um, yeah, I'm dad. <laughs> What are um, your social communities like in New York? Oh, that's a great question. I, I, um, it's really different living here than other places I've lived and has been very challenging. When I first um, moved here, um, a few people reached out, like you, um, which was really great. Many people didn't. Like, it's very difficult here. Um, moving here at a particular, my age that I am and with some health challenges and with a kid, it's been very disorienting. So um, now, though, in the last year or so, I really feel much more settled. So my communities are, my in, in real life, I guess we call it communities, is like primarily, um, I'm part of a, a radical Jewish collective called the Afsalakis Spectacle Committee that produces an annual Purim spiel in alliance with um, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and Domestic Workers United and, and some other groups and so I'm part of that collective now in that community and I'm also on the board of JFridge, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. So meeting and knowing people through that, that's sort of one social world. And then um, my child goes to school, you know, a couple blocks from my house. Our regular zoned, you know, school is very inspiring to me. Um, and uh, just meeting other families through there who who have kids in the school. Um, just becoming friendly with people in sort of day-to-day -day life. It's very different than like living with people and sharing a, a toilet in the kitchen, you know? But um, so becoming friendly with other families. And then a, a lot of my deep friendships are conducted online. You know, my HIV movement friendships are largely online or people I've known for many years. Um, that's, you know, it's just, it's just, it can be very gratifying and feel very rich. And then sometimes I really do long for in-person life. So for example, my Purim process, it's an annual process that gets very intense for three months and then it's much less intense. And so now since it happened a week or two ago, I'm in my like, my down phase about, well, what happens now? Um, but uh, I would say that my um, social circles here are, are, are still pretty little lonely and um, 
I'm not sure how it's all going to end up. The instability I feel as a person with tremendous privilege would still feel the instability I feel in New York City today is not inaccurate, you know? Like, and someone who, who is aging and um, how it's all going to end up, I, I, just, I think there's some real challenges to forming deep ongoing bonds with people. Or I form deep ongoing bonds with people and I don't see them for months, <laughs> right? So it's a it's a, a tricky landscape. Yeah. And what do you do for fun? Um well I um sing songs and I play with my kids. I just really enjoy children and I really enjoy my own child. Um I uh enjoy my pets. I, one thing I really like, honestly, is um, I have invested in um, sequential pairs of um, active noise-canceling headphones and listen to music on the subway. Like, just really, really enjoy it. Really allow myself to just enjoy my music cocoon. Um, it's one of the things I figured out a couple of years ago because I have about an hour commute to work. I go to, you know, several times a week or running to appointments and stuff, just really being able to just connect with music. And, um, what do you listen to? Oh, I listen to WFMU podcast. It's like a radio, a, a freeform radio station. So I know which ones I like. And then also I listen to Tara Brock meditation podcast on the subway, which somehow feels like I'm cheating or, or getting one over or something to like meditate on the subway or something. I don't know. That's a funny stance to have towards meditation, but, oh, also another important thing. I don't know if it's what I do for fun, but, about six years ago, I got into a 12-step fellowship. And while I don't attend regularly at the moment, it's something I carry with me at all times. It's tremendously important to me. And um, yeah, it's really allowed me to be okay with instability and, and all the shit that's sort of gone down. And um, I... Uh, I don't know what I do else I do for fun. I think my life is kind of fun though. Like I think like part of it, some like many days I can be like, part of what I do for fun is really enjoy that I've had such a great life. Like many days I can really sort of like, I feel like I'm held or can rest in like having had such an incredible life, you know? And so I can just sort of re-experience it. And I still have an incredible life, but I can really feel that sense of freedom and expansiveness I used to have that I don't sort of realistically have now. I can sort of live in that. Um, it's Maybe it would be nostalgia, but that sounds kind of sad. But it's not sad. It's really great. Um, it just I, I really um, appreciate having been able to be a part of incredible campaigns and movements that felt feel like truth, you know, to have sort of lived in truth and to feel like I can live that way now and sort of to have that be as like a compass of like what I'm doing now and part of living in truth right now is to um, accept reduced capacity, right? So that means what I can do for fun is like outside the window of my apartment is I can, there's some trees and in the trees there's some starlings and I can see them and that's like what I do for fun is like look at that tree. You know, it's 
pretty great. <laughs> you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview, growing up is one of the only Jewish families mm -hmm. in your neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and then now talking about organizing with Jayfred. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the sort of thread of being Jewish? Yeah, and yeah. How that's played out in your life? Yeah. Activism and relationship to the world? Yeah, sure. It's, um, so, let's see. When I was growing up, like, there's really, like, when I, I remember, like, it was in that first school I was in, so it was sometime between, you know, first and third grade. At one point, I mentioned I was Jewish, and, and in the cafeteria, this one boy called me a dirty Jew, like, being, like, my one explicit anti-Semitic experience. And then I also remember in one of those grades, fairly early on, like, a construction paper display that the teacher put up that was about Christmas and Hanukkah. And... For Christmas, it said, for Christmas, we do this and we do that. Like, I don't know, we put up trees, we sing carols. For Hanukkah, they do this, they do that. They have a menorah, whatever. And I was like, what? And so I was like, I'm not going to be in, I'm Jewish. I'm not going to be in the Christmas play. So I remember that as like one of my first like acts of active resistance was around being Jewish. Even though my family was not particularly religious per se, nor, it, but it was just this one it was something I was, and I knew I was, right? And um, then later, like, and, and I think there was a sense, I think I probably always in my life, from a very young age, had this sense of, um, I, I, I do have a, I have a belief in sort of intergenerational trauma, right? And so I think I had a sense of something being off that comes from, in part, um, the effect of World War II and the Holocaust and, um, perhaps also pogroms and like I have half of my my dad's family is from Holland and my mom's family was from Eastern Europe right and so um, it's something they didn't really talk about and they sort of I think my my memory is that I didn't find out about the Holocaust till I learned in Hebrew school like I did was sent and then and um, was like what what is this and even though my father's grandparents and many other relatives were um, you know murdered or their death was caused by Nazis in the war right and um, so uh, then when I went to Hebrew school, it was like a funny little land of belonging and not belonging there too. And it ended up, the synagogue in my town was Reconstructionist. So we ended up this Reconstructionist synagogue, which is a fairly progressive branch of Judaism. So why I don't remember a lot about it, I feel probably pretty lucky that it, it probably instilled something in me. Um, and so it always, it someone has been this path of like, consciousness let's just say right and then um uh and then as I got later in life where like I would encounter synagogues or like hear people singing a Jewish prayer like it makes me teary like there's something that like really connects to me at a, a deep level about it even though it's not my like faith per se and then um when I came to New York um it is just there's an intersection of people who are in like radical Jewish life, Jewish cultural life that are and political life that's both welcomed me and is just an incredible place to be as sort of a, uh, and it's funny because I'm like a sexual secular Jew who like they're secular Jews but they're like deep in Yiddish or they're like deep in like you know, um, uh, uh, Israel Palestine organizing or other things and I'm just sort of here like I'm here as someone who it's just more like I um, 
found myself in this place and I have my activism and my beliefs and my beliefs in justice and what I work on, but there's also a place for me in this sort of radical Jewish spectrum, you know, that, that um, I don't really have like a lot of explicit words for it, but it's just sort of like, well, here I am. This is funny. I ended up here. My dad's from, my dad was born in Jamaica, Queens, you know, so he was here when his, his parents had came from um, Holland a couple years before that. And um, so I'm not sure really what to make of it. And then at this time, I'm like, like, really? Like, really? Anti-Semitism is this front of, you know, I'm just, I don't know. I'm surprised and not surprised. And uh, it's like being like a trans Jewish journalist <laughs> at this moment. It's just really funny because I don't, I am very careful to not center myself in, you know, in, in, in as a very privileged person, but it is kind of a funny place. And it's also funny, like, for my um, child, like, experiencing Judaism, I think, experiences it as what it is about is, like, movement work and Judaism and Black Lives Matter. It's all, like, one thing, and so I, I feel like that's a fine way for her to experience it, right? And that's how I'm experiencing it now, too, you know? It's like the, the movement trajectory of, of that sits right with me. Is there anything else you want us to include that we haven't I don't know. About? There's so much, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole, like, throughout my, when I think about trans people and HIV and sort of the trajectory of HIV movements not really focusing on or articulating or standing up for trans issues, you know? Um, it's, there's a lot to say about what hasn't happened and what could be happening and should be happening that I'm um, eager to focus more on, but it's a fucking travesty, you know? Um, there's so much there uh, to talk about that needs to happen. If it doesn't happen, um, it, it like the fight against HIV and all the travels with it by not centralizing the experience of trans people in this country and around the world um, through an HIV lens is um, an incredible uh, injustice and impairment of deeply changing what needs to change, not just for trans people, but for everybody. So I'll say that. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, JD. Thank you.